Just as a warning, this episode contains some discussion of suicide. So if anything comes up for you or you know of someone in need of mental health support, call Free ADF Veterans and Family Service Open Arms on 1800 011 046 or in an emergency call 000. Hi, I'm Beck Rayner and this is the Military Life Podcast, a podcast that celebrates, empowers, supports, informs and embraces the spouses beside the military members by building connections, acknowledging our strength, focusing on self-care and our mental health. Let's do this together. Want to join a bank that just gets Defence Life? Defence Bank is one of Australia's largest customer-owned banks. They have 33 on-base branches across Australia, an award-winning banking app that allows you to do all your banking wherever and whenever you want. And with products and services tailored for ADF members and Defence spouses, you'll wonder why you didn't join sooner. Visit defencebank.com.au today and see how easy your banking can be. Today we're talking about the Royal Commission into Defence and Veterans Suicide, which was established in July of 2021, and the role defence partners and families can play in the proceedings. Welcome to the Military Life Podcast, Solicitor Jacinta Harris from the Defence and Veterans Legal Service. Hi, Beck. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. Obviously, this is something that we have been seeing in the news. We've heard about it within the defence community. Could you firstly talk us through why the Royal Commission was established in the first place and what it's actually looking at? As you might know, there's been a number of inquiries and reports since as early as the 1980s about the rate of veteran suicide in Australia. But unfortunately, the rate is still very high, and that's an extreme concern. There's a number of trends and patterns that have emerged through the years as these various inquiries have been conducted. But as I said, the rate is still far too high. For example, between 2001 and 2019, we've still seen 1,273 deaths by suicide. So that's essentially why we've got it. So we can figure out why this is happening and what can be done to stop it from happening in the future. How does a Royal Commission actually work? And are they all the same? Because we've seen that there's been others into other sectors within the community. A Royal Commission is essentially the highest form of public inquiry that we can have in Australia. They aren't all the same, but they do get set up in the same way. So to put my lawyer hat on, they get set up by something called the letters patent, which is where these letters are issued to certain people in the community. In this case, it's the three commissioners. Um, the head of the commission is Commissioner Caldas. And these letters patent direct the commissioners into what they need to look at, and it tells them what they're allowed to do. So in this case, they're directed to inquire into certain matters, which are what we call the terms of reference, and make recommendations. And so essentially, the, the scope of the inquiry and what it's going to look like is set up by these letters patterns. In terms of what it looks like on a day-to-day basis, its key role is, as I said, to inquire. So it's all about information gathering. And as I'll talk about in this podcast, there are different ways that it does gather information, but that's its primary day-to-day function. Its secondary function is to distill that information. So look at what it's collecting and then investigate further. So it can do things um, like force governments, um, government agencies, private individuals to provide information and it becomes a criminal offence not to provide that information which is one of the reasons why a Royal Commission is so important. It takes information, it looks at it, it investigates further, it makes reports, it does case studies. And then one of the most critical things it does is it publicly puts that information before the parties that it's investigating. 
So in this case, the key parties that it's investigating are defence and DVA and the Commonwealth government. So it's looking at putting the information that it's getting from the community to them and asking, well, why is this happening? For example, in DVA, we're getting submissions about why there's very slow processing times. Why is that happening? Talk to us about it. How many cases do you have ongoing? What's the date from which you get a claim to when you're actually processing it and forcing it to provide that data? And then at the end, after it's collated all that information, it makes a report with recommendations to the government, which can then be implemented. And of course, the Royal Commission provides neutral territory and it doesn't have input by political parties or certain individuals. It is, let's lay it all out there. And then the findings are, like you said, put forward and by a totally unfiltered, but then also put forward by a neutral party. Completely right, Beck. It's all about getting information and then having it assessed by this independent body, this independent commission to look at it and force the government to consider it. It can get the government to look at an issue in a way that the government might not do so if it was in its own hands. The Royal Commission is actually underway at the moment. When did it start and why does it actually go for so long? Because Hmm. we've heard that it's been extended until 2024. It was established on the 8th of July, 2021, and on its timeline, it must produce what's called an interim report by 11th of August this year, and then its final report now by 17th of June, 2024. The reason that it's going on for so long is there's just been so many submissions that I think that it maybe perhaps didn't anticipate how many people would want to become involved. For example, at the last hearing, they said they've received more than 1,300 submissions, and all of this data is giving them so much to consider that they really need that extra time to look into it all and to do the topic justice. There might be defence partners and family members or those within the defence community who are connected to a veteran who has already shared their story or maybe those partners or family members have been involved in the Royal Commission already. But for those who don't know much about the Royal Commission, who can actually take part or make a submission? That's a fantastic question. The key point I want to start with is saying that anyone can make a submission either a veteran or a current serving member, a family member of a veteran, a child of a veteran. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. But friends, advocates, anybody who thinks that they've got something to share can make a submission. There is no criteria to assess who can. And most importantly, the commission is exceptionally broad in what it's looking at. It's not just narrow in scope to suicide. It's looking at all the stresses that are involved in defense life that can drive a person to have poor mental health outcomes or to take their own life. So within that, the Royal Commission needs to be able to understand, like I said, all of the stresses that are unique to defence life and to the the defence member's family life as well. So anybody who thinks that they've got something to share about what can be a stressor for defence members, even if they're at that initial point where it's not necessarily resulting in mental health concerns at the moment, but you see that it could perhaps in the future travel down that pathway, it's relevant. The commission is, I like to describe it, in the dark. And anybody who thinks that they could shed light on a topic which can help them to understand why we're seeing poor mental health outcomes can engage. And that's obviously a key thing to stress to people is the fact that it's a Royal Commission into defence and veteran suicide, because maybe some people are just seeing it as it's related to veteran suicide. I don't have personal experience with that. I don't have a story to tell that's related to veteran suicide. And people are thankful that they're not connected to someone that may have experienced mental health challenges or 
veteran suicide, but the stress is that it's into defense and veteran suicide. And one point that I might highlight there is exactly to what you said, people might not think that there's anything that they have to say now, but an interesting and very sad trend is that the rate of suicide is significantly higher for defense members who have left defense. So when they're actually serving, the suicide rate for defence members is significantly lower than the rate for the general Australian population. It's actually 48 or 51% for reservists or full-time serving, significantly lower. But then once they leave the service, that statistic flips. And for ex-serving males, the rate of suicide is actually 24% higher than the Australian population rate for males, and then twice as high for females. So I think it's really important to consider that if you're seeing things that are happening in a defence member's current service, that could be something that leads or gets built upon when that defence member actually transitions out of defence. And we need to start capturing the problems now rather than once they've left and we know that the suicide rate goes up. Defence partners, family members, adult children, those close and connected to defence members or veterans are in most cases or majority of cases, the people that are closest to those defence members, those veterans, those people that have those mental health challenges and possibly experience those challenges that can lead to suicide. Those people need to see themselves as an important part of the puzzle in the Royal Commission because they are, in majority of cases, the first people to pick up on those first signs, the people that are there supporting those people through their mental health challenges. They are the ones that are trying to access the support services, being those people's carers in some instances. They are essential to those people and telling that side of the story. And they need to essentially see themselves as that important part in the picture for the Royal Commission. Exactly. Family members and children see so much that organisations outside of the family don't get to see. And if we're only relying on these organisations to provide information, we're not seeing the whole picture and a particularly important aspect of the picture. One of the things that our service can do is speak to children. We have solicitors who have working with children accreditations. And so even for minors, we can speak to them because they see a unique side of the puzzle as well. Every voice is important from the family. Of course, there's lots of challenges that defence partners and family members and children, defence children experience as part of defence life, which also then impact the ADF member along with the challenges that the ADF member faces within their everyday job when they go on deployments, transitioning home, all mm. of those different challenges. But of course, those things uh, impact the whole family. The same goes for the challenges that the defence family members face as part of defence life. So there's stresses on relationships, there's a higher rate of relationship breakdown, there's defence members and families that are separated from children because of breakdown and maybe Mm -hmm. they're remarried. Like there's all of these different things that maybe when you hear a Royal Commission into Defence and Veteran Suicide, you don't think, oh, well, my story related to those challenges can play a part in this, but all of those issues add to what we're talking about here. 
100%. And that's actually explicitly recognized by the Royal Commission. So remember when I said that it's set up by these letters, Pat, that provide what it must look into, and these are called the terms of reference. One of the terms of reference is explicitly to look at risk factors that contribute to poor mental health outcomes specific to social and family contexts. And another one is to look at systemic issues in support services for families affected. So it actually really is aware that the challenges that face defence communities and families are specific and they're unique and they need to be understood. So if people can share that information about the impact of deployments on the children and how when the partner comes home, the stresses that that creates, that's relevant. What are some of the challenges or the stresses that come along with defence life that could be used as some examples for people who might be thinking about making a submission or being involved with the Royal Commission? So I guess one example I have is a client who um, he was very young, um, young family. His son was born just a couple of months before he went on his deployment. And then he saw some really rough things on his deployment. And then when he came back, he didn't find that he was diagnosed with any kind of mental health condition, but all of a sudden he was abusing alcohol and going out every night, which had never happened before. And this put immense pressure on his family life. He found that he just couldn't be in the house with the baby crying. He It just, in a way that before he went on his deployment, he just couldn't handle it. And then shortly after that, his posting changed when he got back home. So he went from an environment that he really liked and felt really comfortable into a new environment where he really struggled with it. That combined with the undiagnosed PTSD, it just spiraled and it ended up his, his wife and child left him and they separated for a while. His story is one that I think is not uncommon for young families dealing with deployments. Um, and so that's an example of, I guess, stresses that are seeing and creeping up on a person. And in that case, it culminated into a, a complete breakdown for that individual. But the story from the perspective of his wife would, I think, have been exceptionally interesting and very relevant for the commission because he was still working throughout this period and not admitting to anyone what he was going through, but she saw it. And another example I'll give was a client who he left his full-time service after a couple of years and went into the reserves. And in his reserve role and his civilian role, he was massively overworked. And this led to him having a complete mental health breakdown, but he was very much related to the whole experience of being overworked. And he spoke about the, the culture in defense of performance punishment, how he was doing really well so he kept just getting more work. And when other people in their jobs weren't perhaps performing, it was given to him because they knew that he could just get the job done. His partner would have seen all that, would have seen the stress, would have seen him getting overworked and overworked and overworked. And there was no system at work that sat him down and went, hey, like, how are you actually going? Because he would never have spoken about it because he wouldn't have wanted to have it affect his career. He ended up leaving after that breakdown. And, you know, if, if there'd been systems in place where he could have actually had a proper mental health checkup, maybe that wouldn't have happened. So they're just examples, I think, that highlight that it doesn't need to be about somebody getting to the point of actually taking their own life, but someone got to a really bad place. And there was a lot of signs along the way that family members saw that if they were taken into consideration, might have stopped that journey happening in the way that it did or stopped that going down the path that it did. Like you said, the perspective and the stories from the view of the partner or the family members connected to that defence member are just as important because yeah. they are the ones that when that defence member is no longer able to be a 
defence member are then impacted because the defence spouse may not have had stable employment and now Mm -hmm. both of them are looking for employment. You know, like all of those flow on effects where it's not just impacting the defence member, it because defence life does impact the whole family unit, any challenges or any mental health challenges like that also then impact the, the whole family. 100%. And even then in the converse, challenges that are affecting the defense family then have a compounding effect on the veteran. So it can become a cycle. And if you're not understanding the family aspect of the stresses that come with family life, the very unique family life of being a defense member, you're not seeing the whole picture of the stresses on the veteran or the defense member. Yeah. And then of course, the major thing that happens when it comes to a point where that defense member is so impacted that they need to leave the defense force, they are then on the flip side being taken away from their community, from all they've ever known in a lot of cases, mm. because that has been you know, their only career. And yeah. now they are in this civilian world where they are learning to live again they're learning to you know I guess Mm -hmm. uh, go to different workplaces like all of those different things that they've never had to experience but also on top of the reason why they obviously initially left the defense force because of whatever challenges they were facing in the first place you know I've spoken to a a client who said I I left defense and I didn't even know how to write a resume I was homeless because I didn't know how to just do basic life skills and he joined the army when he was 17. That's really important. I've I've got another client who he left because of injuries that he incurred in his service and he's having difficulty with his entitlements. He's got four kids. His wife's had to go back to work full time. She's a teacher. She comes home exhausted and then she's got to look after her veteran who's struggling with having left the service, not getting access to the medical care that he needs, four kids coming home from work. That's a lot. And I think we really need to recognize that. And that is a lot in regard to that spouse then going forward because they have to financially, that partner has to go back to work. But then also having the weight of wondering whether that defense member is coping um, at home with the four kids or with being at home by themselves when they have mental health challenges and that risk of suicide. So many, so many things and, and so many people out there that really, if they are willing and able to come forward and be a part of the Royal Commission, really should. Why is it important that defence partners and family members do consider sharing their stories and their experiences of defence life and any of the associated challenges? Why should they seriously consider about making a submission or being part of the Royal Commission? Mm -hmm. We're still seeing suicide happening. And a Royal Commission is a way to take data and to put it to the people who can make changes. So the Royal Commission firstly needs to get that material from the community to drive those questions. So no change for you without you. But second to that, the Royal Commission needs to make good recommendations and defence members and their families have such a unique perspective on military life and what it means, the challenges that are involved. You're constantly moving. Partners are left alone with the kids. Kids are dealing with the stress of, oh, is is my parent going to die? Which is something that children outside the defense community don't have to deal with on the same scale on a day-to-day basis. If moving, for example, you might not have the support of your wider family. For young mothers, that could present additional stresses. So the Royal Commission needs to hear from those living it to understand it. But also for defense, and this is something we're seeing a lot in the public hearings, there really is a culture of not speaking 
out when you're struggling, if particularly if there's a psychological injury of not speaking about it because it will impact your career, your deployments, your promotion courses, things like that. So the partner might not feel like they can speak about it at work, but they might be speaking about it at home. So families and partners in particular see a piece of the puzzle that defense and the wider community might not be seeing. Do you think that maybe there might be a bit of a change in regard to people wanting to come forward and tell their stories? The Royal Commission has been extended because there has been so many people coming forward and telling their stories so far. And that might be because we're at a point where people want to see change. They want to tell the real raw stories that maybe aren't getting told and they want to have an impact on on changing what isn't working. Definitely. You know, a Royal Commission is a unique platform to, exactly like you said, get the real story forward. And I think people are frustrated and people are fed up with the way that suicide has been treated in the past and they want to see change. There might be defence partners and family members in the community who do want to come forward and tell their story and have it included in the Royal Commission, but maybe they don't feel comfortable doing so or they don't even know how to go about doing it. What help is available for the defence community to ensure that everyone who wants to be involved can be? That's why we've been set up. We are an independent service. We get funding from the Attorney General's Department. We're a national legal service set up by Legal Aid, so we're completely independent And all our solicitors have undergone extensive trauma training to support people who want to make submissions. We're not connected with defense or the government or DBA. So like I said, completely independent. And what we do is talk to people about what their options are. We can explain how you can engage, what the different benefits are of each form of engagement, what the risks might be in a particular individual circumstances and how to mitigate them and essentially help them to do the engagement. We can help people to draft submissions, to participate in private sessions, which I'll talk about in a little bit. And we can link defence members and their families with counselling services if they're not already linked in. And because we're through legal aid, we can also help to triage any other legal problems that you might have. Essentially, we're there to help empower people to decide if they want to share a story and if they are going to do so, to do it safely, comfortably and confidently. Nine out of 10 defence spouses wish they found out about Defence Bank sooner. Okay, I might have just made that up and they do sponsor my podcast, but I've checked them out and I think they're worth a look just for their banking app alone. It's award-winning and currently has a rating of 4.8 out of 5 in both the app and Google Play Store. It does everything a big bank app does with cool features like fast same-day payments, card alerts and controls, pin change functionality, savings roundup, spend tracker, the list goes on. Oh, and if you really want to go to a Defence Bank branch, you can. There are 33 on-base branches across Australia. And with many of their branch staff a defence spouse or partner, you'll be talking to someone who just gets it. Banking as a defence spouse doesn't have to be hard. For more info, visit defencebank.com.au. Taking away any barriers that people might face to being involved in the Royal Commission or sharing their story ensures that anyone who wants to be involved can be involved. Yeah, there's very flexible engagement options and it's really at the control of the individual. You can engage in a way that you feel comfortable with. There's no contract, so you can consider if you want to do so and continue forward. You can control how the information is used. It really is designed to allow the individual to decide if that's right for them and to take control of their own participation. 
there's a common misconception that if you're doing the Royal Commission, you're one of those people who's standing up there at a public hearing with your name broadcast to the world, but it's absolutely not like that. You can engage anonymously, confidentially, and just put in one page of your thoughts if that's what you feel like is right for you. On that, what are the various avenues that defence partners and families can take with being involved in the Royal Commission? Like you mentioned, it's not just everyone standing up there giving evidence. There's submissions, evidence, there's all these different options. What are the options? First and foremost is to make a submission. This is not formally giving evidence. It's just about information sharing. So the beauty of that means that the individual who's making a submission doesn't have to do it in a particular way. It's not about writing, you know, an affidavit for court. It's just about speaking in a way that resonates for you. So you could even do an audio recording and send that in. I'm doing submissions with a client at the moment where we're having a a conversation with each other over a video call and then she's submitting that as her submission. It could be about writing your thoughts down in bullet points, or it can be a 25-page submission about what you've seen and your recommendations. That's a submission. It can be very flexible in its format. It can be submitted online or in paper, um, whatever way is best for the individual. And when a person makes a submission, they can ask for it to be kept confidential. So it won't be published in any way. It will just be used by the Royal Commission to inform its work, but it's not going to be broadcast on the front page of the paper. Or you can ask for it to be public and the Royal Commission could potentially publish it. Or you could even say, I'm happy for it to be published, but just not with any names in it. So it's really up to the individual of what their submission is going to look like. So that's the first way and anyone can do that. The other option is to do something called a private session which these are only eligible to either defence members with lived experience of those poor mental health outcomes or who have had suicidal ideation, or it's eligible to family members of someone who has passed away by suicide. These private sessions, however, are a one-on-one meeting, and it can be even a defence member and their partner together. I've had a number of clients who've done it together, and you sit down with the commissioner either face-to-face or in a video call or telephone, and you talk to them for an hour. And it's very informal, and it has to stay private. It's actually a criminal offence for the information to be shared outside of that private session, subject to only very limited exceptions, and the information stays private for 99 years. So these are great for people who might still be serving and they're having a really hard time and they want to talk about what's happening, but they're worried that it could affect their employment. These are great because you could do it with your partner, share with the Royal Commission what's happening. You could even do it anonymously. And then even becomes a criminal offence for anyone to prejudice you in your employment for what you're saying in that session. Now, obviously, we do encourage people to speak to us to get legal advice before they do decide to share information. But again, these are a great option for people. And the other option is to speak publicly at a public hearing. But this option isn't for everyone. The Royal Commission decides who's going to speak as a witness and they will contact people once they've made a submission to ask if they'd be open to speaking publicly. There's not really any way to request to be a witness at a public hearing. No one will be forced to be a witness if they don't want to. So if you make a submission, the Royal Commission is not going to turn around and force you to speak at a public hearing. Which is very important for people to know that there are options available dependent on how you want to be involved and how public you would want to make that. And like you said, protections in place for current serving or those families that have some things that they want to be heard or want to be included in the Royal Commission, but have that fear that it could impact employment or could open them up to legal 
woes or there's lots of things that goes through people's minds because Mm. a lot of it is unknown totally not a lot of us have been involved in a royal commission before that's why we're here to talk through that with people I speak to people who are worried if I name someone I'm being bullied by my boss and I want to talk about it can I name that person and the answer is if you want to share names with the royal commission you actually can there's qualifications to that and we can talk through that with people but that's a question that we answer people want to know if they make a submission can it be accessed by someone afterwards and we can talk to people about that if you do one of those private sessions, your information can't be accessed by a freedom of information request or a subpoena for 99 years. So it's very locked down. And a lot of people don't know about this, that there are really protected ways to engage. And we really do love speaking to people. And sometimes I've spoken to people who've gone, I've been sitting on this information for 40 years and I just wanted to tell someone about it. And now I feel like I can The help that's offered through the Defence and Veteran Legal Service is nationwide and can be provided in, like you mentioned, different ways. People can submit audio submissions, they can write something. There's different ways that people can be involved. But what are the methods that you can help them with if they come to you for help with their submission or with being involved through your service? We're very flexible. We've got solicitors in every state across Australia. We don't have anyone on the ground in the Northern Territory, but we travel there. And if people want to meet with us, we can do it face-to-face. If they want to have an initial chat over the phone, it's very easy. They'd be linked in with either one of our central team in New South Wales or another solicitor across the country. And you can have as many appointments with us as you like. It's completely free. You can call us and have a chat with us. I've got clients who I'm working on submissions with and we meet on a video call once a month and then they send me drafts via email and I help them with that. I have other clients in more regional parts of New South Wales and they wanted to meet face-to-face and I've traveled to meet with them and sit down and put their submission together. So we're really informed by the person. Whenever anybody starts their journey with us, they just call through to our central info line team. They've all gone through training to provide services that are aware of what people have gone through. And they'll link you in with a lawyer in your state or like I said, the central team, depending on what kind of service you're after. And then usually you can get an appointment with a day or two. Your first appointment will be for an hour. And then if you want to have ongoing appointments, we can set that up. Or like I said, face-to-face, or if you want to just go ahead by email and just speak to us anonymously over email for a bit, we can definitely do that too. There's plenty of different options for various people and for them to be involved in various ways. There might also be defence partners or family members or children of defence members out there who think their veteran, whether they are current serving or have transitioned out, should take part. How can we talk it through with our veteran and encourage them to seriously consider taking part or writing a submission when they might think that it's not for them or they have concerns about being involved? How can Mm. we talk it through with them? I think the opening question to have is, Asking, do you think that there's anything happening at work that perhaps isn't right? If they're still serving, you know, is something happening that you don't really agree with that you think is wrong? And if they've left, was the things that happened at work that you perhaps didn't like? And just open the door perhaps gently. And then the next question is, do you think that there's anything that could have been done differently? Is there something that you wish had happened or a way that things had been treated that would have changed the situation for you? Asking them, how did that all make you feel? Was it as simple as, for example, I had a client who he had a personal disagreement with a person of a higher rank 
And that person of a higher rank then managed to manipulate that person's access to marital housing, stop that person from getting certain deployments. And that person was really frustrated. He participated in a process to have what was happening looked at. And that process took a period of time that was far too long and that ended up impacting his career. So asking that person, what do you think could have been done differently? How did it make you feel that that happened? And then talking to let them know that their story could help others both now and in the future. So by sharing with the Royal Commission what happened to you and what you think might have helped the situation to not go the way that it did, you could be helping someone else. And what about if what they want to talk about hasn't specifically happened to them, but impacted them because of their value system, they know in their gut that something happened to someone else and it just wasn't right. I think that's a fantastic question. I had a client who had witnessed other people in defense attempt to take their own lives because of things that he saw that was happening, certain bullying that was happening to that person. And he thought that was wrong and he felt that moral obligation to bring that forward. And we helped him to make a submission. And we can talk to people about sharing stories about other people to make sure that you are doing it in a way that is safe and isn't going to put you in any situations that you don't want to be in. But you can definitely share stories where you feel that gut instinct to bring information forward. None of this is easy. Talking about situations where other people were bullied and attempted to take their own life or extreme challenges that families or defence members face or those people who are connected to someone who has taken their own life and they are connected to veteran suicide. None of it is easy, but it's needed. Exactly. My partner is a serving member and I feel like I hear these stories and I haven't seen that my partner's gone through anything that he would say, oh, I've suffered poor man's health outcomes. But I just imagine, well, what if that happened to him in the future? And if I can be part of setting up systems and processes that don't allow for that to happen, I want to do that. I want to do the difficult thing. I want to have the hard conversations. We've spoken about various ways that people can connect in and tell their story. There's submissions, there's different ways that they can be involved. But when they come to your service or they sit down themselves to look at making a submission or writing their story or whichever way they want to be involved, when they come to you, do they have to have, okay, you need to have times, dates, you need to have specific information, needs to be treated word for word, even though the story might be from 20 years ago. How does it work with the details of Mm. the submission? That's a real concern that we hear from a lot of people. Oh, I can't remember this date. Can I still talk about this? And the answer is that dates aren't important. The Royal Commission, particularly from submissions, wants to get the individual's impression of what they saw or what happened to them. So it's not about proving that something happened. It's about having your say. You don't have to have backup documents. And the Royal Commission has said that they don't really want lots of documents. You don't have to have all the specifics. You don't even need to say dates, names, places. It's about giving them an understanding of the themes and the issues, why certain things happened and what you think could be done differently. Talking about and telling your story can be really triggering for some and making sure someone's mental health is a top priority. We want as many people to step forward and be involved and tell their story, but we don't want for them to risk impacting their mental health even further. Is there any help in place for someone who does want to be involved but is concerned that it might trigger them or have a negative impact on their defence member? Definitely. We're very, very aware of this and we want to make sure that if people are engaging, they're supported. 
So that's why we've all undergone extensive training to provide trauma-informed services so that we can help as much as possible to avoid re-traumatization. We're also able to link people in with various different mental health services, including for families to support them as they go along. We've had clients who found the appointments quite difficult and at the end we've sat with them and called up counselling services to debrief until the person is ready to leave and feels like they are in a safe space. So we want to make sure that people are supported and doing this in the right way. What has happened so far with regard to the Royal Commission? It's been underway for a little while now. We've had four public hearings. And like I mentioned at the start, public hearings are one of the ways where the information that's been collated is put to different people. So the public hearings so far have been across the country. We've seen one in Brisbane, Sydney, Canberra. And the next block will be in Townsville. And there's upcoming hearings in Tasmania and Wagga Wagga as well. At these hearings, they've questioned high-ranking defence members as well as DVA staff and international experts. And they've allowed the commissioners to directly question those individuals as well. Some of the topics that were explored, I guess, at the last hearing block were military families are expected to use mainstream support services. And in reality, these services don't understand veteran family experiences. Another one was the visibility of veterans to defense and ADF after they transition, that that visibility is quite low because they're relying on data from other sources, that defense needs information about what's happening to people before ideation or suicide attempts occur. And defence acknowledge that they don't have the whole picture yet. Another topic that keeps coming up is DVA delays and how this increases the risk of suicidality and that it's an urgent matter that needs to be addressed. And DVA has agreed with this. So there's an interim report due out by the 11th of August this year. What is an interim report? It's a report basically on the findings so far, but it's also an opportunity for the Royal Commission to make easy recommendations that could be implemented immediately. Like I said at the beginning, the Royal Commission will make a final report with recommendations to government. And these recommendations are generally quite big. They require financial resources and time to implement. But these easy recommendations could be things that could be implemented straight away. So we're expecting to see these first recommendations in this interim report. Does it mean that the government has to look at those recommendations and say, okay, well, we can put this, this and this in place right now? Because like you said, they are things that can be put in place now instead of waiting until 2024 when the Royal Mm. Commission is completed. What actually happens with the recommendations and who's in charge of making sure that any of them actually come to fruition or any of the things that they could change actually happen? Well, the first answer there is that the recommendations aren't mandatory. So they're put before the government, they're put before parliament, and that's where the public comes in because public pressure is really important to make the politicians act on the recommendations that are put before them. And it can happen. We recently had the Aged Care Royal Commission and there was a lot of strong lobbying behind that. And the commissioners in that commission made 148 recommendations and the government accepted 126 of those and supported an alternative to four. And then I think considered further another 12. If the public gets behind what these recommendations are and says we need these to be implemented, there is a strong correlation between those recommendations being made and them actually happening. And it's not just nominal. Like, for example, in the aged care, one of the recommendations was that the acts be replaced. And that's something that I know is being lobbied for with this Royal Commission. And after the aged care commission, the government set aside 26 million for the development of the act. And that act in its second version is currently before the Senate. 
the public does have a role to play in getting those recommendations put into action, but parliament are the ultimate ones who can make those changes. Which is also then just the fact that once the Royal Commission is complete, which is not for quite a while yet, 2024, once those recommendations are handed down, the public, even if they haven't been involved specifically with the Royal Commission, still have a huge part to play in pushing those that can make a difference with those recommendations to follow through. It's hard for a government to ignore a Royal Commission's recommendations because it is the highest form of public inquiry that we've got, but they need to continue to hear from their constituents, I think, to give them that further push to perhaps make changes that are more expensive or are harder to implement to make the difficult calls that might not be what they want to do, but is what actually is needed to be done. Within the defence community, the hard part with any of the advocates within the defence community pushing for change within support organisations or whatever the various defence challenges are within defence life is that we don't have any evidence or research to fall back on a lot of the time, but a Royal Commission is providing those raw facts, Mm. those stories, those real people and that independent party that have said we have found from these few years that we've talked to people that these themes are coming through and Mm -hmm. we recommend this, this and this. So it's a document for us to fall back on and say, it's not just us saying it, there's other people saying this too. Totally. And to take that one step further, it's an opportunity to get those raw facts and then to put them to the people who might be responsible. So for example, to say to DVA, you have had evidence that you have 220,000, for example, outstanding claims. And we know suicidal ideation is a result of people in this prolonged state of uncertainty and financial hardship. Why haven't you made changes? And they are in public, in a public hearing where they cannot give false evidence and they must and are legally required to provide an answer. They can't duck out of that. They have to explain themselves. And where else does the public get that opportunity? What timeframes should defence partners and families keep in mind when it comes to making a submission or being involved with the Royal Commission? Obviously, we, we know, like we've mentioned, it's been extended to 2024, but like what are the cutoff dates mm. that people should keep in mind if they are thinking, actually, I do want to be involved? At the moment, the cutoff date for submissions is the 14th of October, but that was the date that was set down before the extension of the Commission as a whole was announced. That date may change that's a watch this space. But for now, it's the 14th of October. For private sessions, there's been quite a lot of interest for private sessions. So I would encourage people to register for a private session if they're interested in that as soon as possible. They will continue holding them after the date for submissions has ceased, but they will close registrations at some point. And I know that there is a bit of a wait time now for people to get them. So if you are interested in one of those one-on-one private meetings, give us a call first and we can talk to you about them or jump onto the Royal Commission's website and register. How can people get in contact with your service and get the help via Defence and Veterans Legal Service? We've got a 1800 number. It's 1800-33-1800. You'll be put through to our very friendly info line team who'll figure out what you'd like to speak to a lawyer about. They'll book you in for an appointment and then you'll have a chat with one of us. We're all very friendly. It can even just be an initial chat where you don't give your name, but you just say, hi, I want to talk about something that I know has happened to my husband at work. And I'm not sure if I'm allowed to. Can you talk to me about that? He doesn't know that I'm talking to you. Is that okay? And we can have an initial chat. And then if that person wants to set up another time to speak even with their husband around we can speak together we can do that too 
We've got, like I said, lawyers everywhere across the country and we can do the appointments over a telephone call, face-to-face or by video. This service is free. Everyone can access it and there's no cost involved. Correct, correct. It's completely free throughout the entire process. So even if we sit down with you eight times to put together your submission, it's free the entire way through. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Jacinta. My pleasure, Vec. I so hope you were able to relate or take something away from today's episode. There are definite ups and downs to military life, but let's get the conversation happening so we can see that we are all in this together. We are all just doing our best. So until next week, you got this. Let's do this together one day at a time. Thank you so much for tuning in. If this episode has touched you, helped you, or given you that extra confidence to keep going, to continue to hold down the home front, to continue to do all the things, I would so appreciate it if you could pop into Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the podcast and leave a review, a comment about what you would like to hear more of, or just some encouraging words. If you want to suggest a guest, I am always looking for new people to talk to. You can do that by jumping over to the website www.militarywife.com.au and clicking on our podcast page. I would love to hear from you. 